Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? It is officially Charlie Brown season. I know. I am so excited. You know, right between Thanksgiving and Christmas is when my family buckles down and we watch all those specials. (laughs) And it is wild. It's been over 50 years since some of the big ones actually came out. But what is weirdest to me is that my kids are so into Charlie Brown. Like, it's almost (laughs) quaint. Ruby had a Peppermint Patty birthday party when she turned three because she assumed everyone was into Peppermint Patty, too. Uh, And so we just hand out headbands and did it at a gym. I love this fact and the fact that probably more than half the kids had no idea who Peppermint (laughs) Patty was, at least going into the party. I'm sure Ruby told them all about her, but... Anyway, so so why are they so into the specials? You know, I have no idea. Something just clicked with them. But like Henry actually based his Thanksgiving speech a few years ago completely on the one that uh, I, I think Charlie Brown gives in the Thanksgiving special. And, and right. uh, we've definitely watched It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and uh, Charlie Brown Christmas a whole bunch of times. But, you know, they're even into some of the oddball ones like Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, which is about the gang going to camp. <laughs> That's very good. I mean, you you did hit on some of the big ones there, but I do think you forgot one of the most important of them all, really. Oh, yeah? What's that? Of course, it's Arbor Day, Charlie Brown. (laughs) I do not think we watched that one. Is is that a real thing, or are you just making that up? Oh, it's absolutely a real thing. It was just one of the 45 Charlie Brown specials out there. 45? I I had no idea there were that many. Oh, man, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, you don't watch It's the Easter Beagle, Charlie Brown, every single Easter. I don't know how it could be Easter <laughs> without that special. And actually, there's also It's Your First Kiss, Charlie Brown, which is another classic and also, I guess, huh. kind of weird. But yeah, we've got a lot of catching up to do here. And with the holiday season upon us, we thought now would be the perfect time to look into the history of our favorite melancholy grade schoolers. So we'll talk about the origin of the comic strip, including the real-life inspiration behind some of the characters, the story of how the beloved Christmas special came to be, and how it was very nearly canceled in production. Now, of course, we'll also talk a little bit about the reason why creator Charles Schultz hated the name Peanuts, and why some fans can't stand Snoopy. There's a lot to cover, so let's dive in. 
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, just shuffling a stack of buttered toast, kind of like it's a deck of cards. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And I do have to admit, when Tristan said he wanted to recreate the famous meal from the Peanuts Thanksgiving special... I really never dreamed it would be this theatrical, but it's really quite a show, don't you think? (laughs) You didn't think Tristan would be theatrical? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It just surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea how he's doing this. He's he's wearing those slices like he's a blackjack dealer or something. But uh, I like that he's giving the Thanksgiving special a little love. I, I feel like it's always the one that gets overshadowed by both like the Halloween special and the Christmas special. But uh, you know, we've had a soft spot for a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving at my house, especially where um, Snoopy puts together that last minute feast for Charlie Brown, and he's got all that popcorn and pretzels, but. When the kids are gone, Snoopy and Woodstock are just back at their doghouse and mm-hmm. they've got a lavish spread for themselves with like <laughs> pumpkin pie, roasted vegetables, even this giant cooked turkey. And they're basically living it up while the kids are just eating, you know, snack food. I mean, it's kind of a jerk move, but when you think about it, it's it's that mix of whimsy and low-key meanness that are sort of par for the course for Peanuts. Actually, for instance, did it ever strike you as just a little bit weird that Woodstock would help Snoopy carve and eat the turkey? I mean, Woodstock (laughs) is a bird, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) You know what's funny about it is that I I never actually gave it much thought, but it it turns out you're not alone in this. Lee Mendelson, who is the executive producer on the Peanuts specials, he actually objected to that scene because he was (laughs) so weirded out by it. But because the idea had come straight from Charles Schultz, the Peanuts creator, he was just over ruled and the scene aired as planned. But uh, you know what was funny is that Mendelssohn did eventually get his way. So all these years later, CBS asked Mendelssohn to cut three minutes from the special so they could fit in, you know, more commercials. And Mendelssohn seized the chance and he removed that scene of Woodstock eating turkey so you can only see him eating pie instead. But then a few years later, the rights to the special moved to ABC and the network decided to air it uncut, meaning Woodstock is once again a cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) It feels a little bit odd to be kicking off our peanut show with a fact about bird cannibalism, but it also kind of feels appropriate, (laughs) you know, given how dark Charlie Brown and his chums could often be. Actually, in fact, have you ever seen the very first Peanuts trip? I have, but I don't remember it. Yeah, so it shows a boy and a girl just sitting on the sidewalk. And this boy, uh, Shermie is his name, he says, Well, here comes good old Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir, good old Charlie Brown. And then when Charlie Brown is out of sight, Shermie adds, How I hate him. <laughs> you know, and that's the punchline. So yeah, there's there's definitely some darkness to the world of Peanuts, no matter how cute or simplistic the characters might look. But... There's also incredible warmth and humor there as well. And it feels like it's that unique mix that really made Peanuts this enduring part of pop culture, not only in the U.S., but all around the world. So we've definitely got a lot to go through today, but where do you think you want to start? Why don't we spend a few minutes on the man behind the Peanuts himself, Charles M. Schultz. So this name sounds familiar enough because we've all seen his name a million times. It's signed at the bottom of each and every Peanuts strip, all 17,897 of them. Wow. 
But despite the constant exposure, lots of people still misname him as Schultz with a T. It's actually S-C-H-U-L-Z. And according to Medium, the misspelling is so common that it's actually appeared wrong in more than 30,000 articles to date, Hmm. as well as the original opening to the Peanuts Christmas special. I guess someone uh, caught it at the very last minute, but there was an error that was going to be aired in the premiere. Wow. You know, I guess I'd actually never thought about this, and, and I'm sure that I'm guilty of making the same mistake, but what what kind of name is Schultz? Like, is, is it German? Yeah, his dad, Carl Schultz, immigrated from Germany to Minnesota, which is where he met Charles's mom, Dina, and uh, Charles was this only child. He, he was born in 1922. He grew up in St. Paul, but what's interesting is that St. Paul is one of the few places in the country that has both super hot summers and freezing cold winters, and it's the same for the Peanuts kids, right? Like, there's so many strips that are centered on these summer activities like playing baseball, flying kites, selling lemonade on hot days. But then you have a ton of strips where there's like a foot of snow on the ground and everyone's playing ice hockey. Hmm. So then is is Peanuts actually set in St. Paul? I mean, there's some debate about that. Some fans think the strip is set near uh, Santa Rosa, California, which is where Schultz lived uh, once the Peanuts became a hit. But, you know, that doesn't make much sense when you look at all all the strips set in the winter. But what little evidence there is in the strips does kind of point to either St. Paul or Minneapolis as their hometown. Mm -hmm. For instance, there's a strip in 1957 that implied that the characters lived in uh, Hennepin County, which is in Minnesota. And two years before that, there was one where Schroeder confesses he always thought his hero Beethoven was a native of Minnesota, which, you know, is presumably just like him. All right, well, all of that makes sense. And you'd actually expect a cartoonist to set the strip about childhood in their hometown. That wouldn't be that surprising. And mm-hmm. it would be pretty on theme for Schultz because when you look at the comics, so many elements of the Peanut strip turn out to be somewhat biographical. I mean, just listen to this breakdown. Shermie was a childhood friend. Schroeder was a caddy at the golf course Schultz worked at as a teenager. Linus and Lucy Van Pelt got their last name from a man Schultz served in the army with. Meanwhile, Lucy's character was inspired by Schultz's first wife and his mother. I guess there's a lot to unpack there, but that (laughs) does seem to be the case. Actually, I, I was reading this tribute to Charles Schultz from Bill Watterson, who is my hero and uh, who did the Calvin and Hobbes strips. Yeah, of course. And he, he thought of Peanuts as the gold standard of comic strips. And this is his take on Lucy. Quote, I was struck less by the fact that Schultz drew on his troubled marriage for material than by the sympathy that he shows for his tormentor and by his ability to poke fun at himself, which is... Actually, pretty interesting. Like, like you know, Lucy is annoying and mean-spirited, but you don't ever really hate her for it. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. And, you know, he was looking for inspiration everywhere. Even Linus's famous blue blanket came straight from Schultz's life. When his daughter was younger, she was obsessed with her own security blanket. Yeah, I mean, of course you're going to be stealing from life when you've got like a daily deadline and and working at that sort of volume. But I I think the one character I always think about is the little red-haired girl who goes unnamed. And, uh, you know, that's the one that Charlie Brown always had that huge crush on. Mm -hmm. She was apparently based on Schultz's girlfriend in the late 40s, this redhead named Donna Mae Johnson. And after the war, the two of them worked together at this correspondence school in Minneapolis. And after a few years of dating, Schultz finally worked up the nerve to propose to her. But then Donna Mae turned him down and married a different guy a few months later. And it was obviously this huge blow to his pride. But in the end, the ordeal actually inspired one of Schultz's most famous characters. And supposedly, he and Donna Mae remained friends for years later. Hmm. I mean, there are some definite shades of Charlie Brown to that story. And you can see that throughout his work. 
Yeah, definitely. And it makes sense because both Charlie Brown and Snoopy, they're often considered stand-ins for Schultz himself. In fact, Charles's son, Craig Schultz, once said about him, each of the characters represents a piece of our dad. Charlie Brown was his real self and Snoopy was what he wanted to be, which is kind of funny to think about, but it makes sense. And yeah, that said, both characters also had real-world counterparts, too. Charlie Brown was actually the name of a friend that Charles worked with prior to creating Peanuts, and Snoopy was based on Charles's own childhood dog, this English pointer, not a beagle, who was named Spike, and whose name would later be used for one of Snoopy's brothers. So if Schultz had a dog named Spike, then where's the name Snoopy come from? Well, apparently Charles had originally planned to call his dog Sniffy, but then he found out that another comic featured a dog with the same name, so he had to change it to something else. But luckily, he had this backup. You know, when he was a kid, his mother suggested that if they ever got another dog, they should name him Snoopy, and so that's where the name came from. But anyway, back back to the real-world Snoopy for a second. It's pretty striking how devoted to his dog Charles was, just like Charlie Brown would later be with Snoopy. So how how do you mean? Well, the very first drawing that Charles ever published was of his dog, Spike. So Charles was just 15 years old at the time when he submitted this drawing, uh, and actually a fact along with it to Ripley's Believe It or Not, and it got published nationally. I mean, that's pretty cool, but what was so unbelievable about Spike that got him published in Ripley's? Well, the drawing's caption said that Spike was, quote, a hunting dog that eats pins, tacks, and razor blades. So uh. <laughs> he didn't exactly have Snoopy's refined palate, but it does sound like Spike shared his taste for adventure. There was this article in Mental Floss about this that was talking about, you know, the dog would make a break for freedom anytime the door was open and only come back because he loved going on car rides. So whenever Spike got loose, Charles would run to his dad's car and basically just honk the horn as a way to lure the the dog back. I mean, we, we actually had a dog like that growing up. She'd run off, but the only way to get her back was to unwrap a slice of American cheese. Exactly. That's what always works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird that like that plastic peel sound, yeah. like when it was coming off the craft slices, that's what would make her race back to the house. But, you know, having a dog you keep losing sounds very Charlie Brown to me as well. And, and, uh, Speaking of which, some of my favorite Peanuts facts are, are the ones that overlap between Charlie Brown's childhood and Charles Schultz's. Like, there's uh, surface-level stuff, but both of them had fathers who were barbers. But but then there are also those, like, wonderfully tragic tidbits from Schultz's life that feel so Charlie Brown. Like, mm-hmm. uh, his dad used to give him haircuts, but when customers came in, he'd have to hop out of the chair. So he'd just have to <laughs> grump around and wander about with half a haircut until his dad could finish it up. <laughs> which does sound so very Charlie Brown. It's pretty great. Yeah, I know. And there was actually one time when Schultz stood in line at a movie theater because they were handing out candy bars to the first 100 kids to buy tickets that day. And of course, Schultz was the 101st kid in line, you know? (laughs) And when he was in high school, Schultz's teacher convinced him to draw some comics for his senior yearbook. And so Schultz, of course, being super timid and, and socially awkward, he's a little nervous, but he desperately wants to be a cartoonist. So he overcomes his shyness, he submits artwork. And then when the yearbook comes out, of course, everyone had forgotten to include his work. Like, not a single one of his cartoons got used. <laughs> well, that's a tough break. But, you know, it is interesting to see, though, that not every aspect of Peanuts is drawn from Schultz's own experience. You know, if you take the character Franklin, for instance, he was introduced as the comic strip's first black character. Now, this was in July of 1968. And this was just a few months after the assassination of uh, MLK Jr., yeah, it's amazing that that's 50 years ago this year. And, and uh, 
And this was based on a reader's suggestion, right? Yeah, that's right. The reader was a mother of three named Harriet Glickman, and she wrote to Schultz just a few days after the death of Martin Luther King. And now in that note, the Glickman noted the power that mass media has to shape what she called the unconscious attitudes of our kids. So she asked Schultz to add one or more black characters to his strips, and this was so that children could see that respect and friendship was possible between people of all races. And Schultz was pretty moved by the idea, but he didn't add the character immediately. He was actually a little bit nervous that the move might seem to be patronizing to black readers. But as Glickman continued to correspond with him over the course of several months, you know, he decided to change his mind on this. And on July 1st, he wrote to say that Glickman should watch for the new character to appear by the end of the month, which, of course, he did. And so does Schultz suffer any blowback from from this when when the strip comes out? Well, you know, you had some black readers that did argue that Franklin was a bland character and therefore somewhat patronizing. But in general, readers appreciated the added representation as well as you know, how kind and worry-free Franklin was compared with other Peanuts kids. But still, it was undoubtedly a tense time for America for an artist to debut what was essentially the first minority character in a mainstream comic strip. Hmm. But other than this brief exchange where Franklin mentions that his father was a soldier in Vietnam, there's really nothing overtly political about his inclusion. Like Charlie Brown loses his beach ball only to have it found and returned to him by a boy named Franklin, and then the boys decide to build a sandcastle together. Which is, of course, very sweet. Yeah, but there's definitely a bit of backlash from this. You had several newspaper editors from southern states that wrote to Schultz demanding that he stop using the character, or at the very least that he avoids showing Franklin in school with the other white characters, which is just huh. mind-boggling to think about. Yeah. But his response was pretty straightforward. So here's what he told an interviewer years later about the incident. I never paid any attention to those things. And I remember telling United Features President Larry Rutman at the time about Franklin. He wanted me to change it. And we talked about it for a long while on the phone. And I finally sighed and I said, well, Larry, let's put it this way. Either you print it just the way I draw it or I quit. How's that? So that's the way it ended. I mean, that is so awesome. And it's nice to hear that, like, despite whatever reservations he might have had at the beginning, Schultz ultimately went to bat for Franklin in this really big way. Yeah. And, you know, I I know we wanted to talk about an earlier occasion when Schultz butted heads with upper management and this time about what the strip should be called. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about cartoonist Charles Schultz and his beloved Peanuts comic strip. So, you know, to, to be clear, there was one thing that Schultz definitely did not love about his own strip, and that was the title. So back in 1950, when he first pitched the strip to be carried by the United Features Syndicate, Schultz insisted the title should be Little Folks. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe wasn't the most creative title, but it does seem... I don't know, somewhat fitting if you think about how so many of his characters, they, they read like these little kids with grown-up type worries and like they're plagued by this level of anxiety and almost neurosis that's typically reserved, you know, for adults. Yeah, but whether it's fitting or not, the executives had this different problem with it. So there was already a strip called Little Folks, except mm -hmm. with the word little all spelled out instead of Lil, like right. L-I-L. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then there was also Lil Abner, uh, the comic strip. So they worried that readers might confuse the titles or, or worse, that the creators of the rival strips might sue them for copyright infringement. So yeah. instead, the production manager at the syndicate decided to call the strip Peanuts. And I guess this was a reference to the Howdy Doody show that was pretty popular at the time. When kids yeah. came to tapings, they sat in the peanut gallery. So the production manager thought, you know, like he'd riff off that idea and just call the small kids peanuts. I do like that their solution to not being sued was to rip off a TV show instead, but <laughs> either way. I know. I mean, the, the other theory is that they just thought Little Folks was a weak title, but they didn't yeah. want to upset Schultz. Um, not that he wasn't upset anyway. In, in a 1987 interview, he was still angry about the Peanuts title, and he said, quote, it's totally ridiculous, has no meaning, is simply confusing, and has no dignity. And I think my humor has dignity, <laughs> which is <laughs> sad that you, you never got to change the name. But, yeah. you know, of course, once the strip took off, he was kind of stuck with the title. And... Uh, What's funny to me is that Schultz actually avoided using the title himself. Like he claimed that whenever someone asked him what he did for a living, he would just tell them, I draw that comic strip with Snoopy in it, Charlie <laughs> Brown and his dog. <laughs> Well, whatever you call it, there's no question that Schultz's comic was a runaway hit once the strip gained a little bit of steam. Mm -hmm. So it was published in just seven U.S. newspapers when it debuted back in October of 1950. Well, by the end of its 50-year run in 2000, the comic was being translated in over 20 different languages, published in 75 different countries, and had grown its global readership to a staggering 355 million wow. people. So in total, over 15,000 daily strips and 2,500 Sunday strips were produced, all written, inked, and lettered by Charles Schultz himself. I mean, it was this unprecedented run, and actually so unprecedented that the media scholar Robert Thompson once called the 50-year story of Charlie Brown and his pals arguably the longest told story by a single artist in human history. I mean, that's really incredible to think about. So what do you think made it click with people for such a long time? 
Well, I think a big part of it goes back to something that we mentioned at the top of the show, which is the way the strip really found this middle ground in terms of tone. I mean, it was funny and sometimes sweet, but there was always kind of this prickly, world-weary feeling underlying the humor there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as it turns out, this was all by design. So Schultz believed that happiness and humor didn't really mix, which is, of course, why (laughs) Charlie Brown never does get to kick that football. And, you know, Schultz also dealt with bouncing of depression in his own life, and one way he found relief was by channeling his anxieties directly into his art, which makes a lot of sense. And the result is a strip with a somewhat despairing worldview, and and one where, as Schultz once explained, here's what he said about it, he said, all the loves are unrequited, all the baseball games are lost, all the test scores are D-minuses, the great (laughs) pumpkin never comes, and the football is always pulled away. Like, when you describe it like that, it really does, yeah. (laughs) It's funny that Schultz, like, completely stuck to that formula for the strip's entire run. Yeah. Uh, Though, I guess things did get a little cheerier in the mid to late 60s, once the TV specials started, like, and... and, uh, all that merchandising really kicked into high gear. I've actually heard that most fans use the rise of Snoopy in pop culture as kind of a turning point in the strip's run. And, uh, you know, there's this first decade or so where Snoopy is more or less this normal dog in the strip. He, he walks on four legs. He, he doesn't communicate through thought balloons. And he doesn't even have a clear owner in the strips, like much less this tricked out doghouse. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, this is also the period where the human characters were what, what the creator of Little Abner called good, mean, little bastards eager to hurt one another. <laughs> but uh, as the 60s dawned, Schultz began to capitalize on his creation with licensing deals and product tie-ins, which caused that public perception of Peanuts to shift. And suddenly the characters were seen as much sweeter and kinder than the strips had ever really been. And while the newer strips never really lost their edge completely and Charlie Brown remained the world's, you know, punching bag, Snoopy did begin to take on more and more of the limelight. And as this happened, the the character became less and less like a real dog. By the late 60s, Snoopy was walking on two legs. He was composing love letters with a typewriter in his (laughs) doghouse. He was also spending a lot less time around the human characters. And instead, he was either hanging out with his new animal friends like Woodstock, or he was off by himself sort of waging these imaginary wars against the villainous Red Baron. But, you know, in other words, things took a much zanier turn. And lots of Peanuts fans kind of think of that as when the strip kind of jumped the shark. I know some people must have liked these changes, though, right? Because Snoopy never became a normal dog again, so it feels like something must have been working. Yeah, I mean, so some readers thought the new Snoopy was a breath of fresh air, especially in contrast to how bleak the kids could be sometimes. And, and that really does make sense when you think about how the other characters never really react to Snoopy's changes. Um, you know, he, he suddenly has this whole inner world that's generally much more positive and upbeat than that of the kids, but they still kind of just treat him like a regular dog. Which is interesting because I wonder what such a sharp turn in characterization says about what was going on, you know, for Schultz at the time, like in his own life. And, you know, I've got this new freewheeling Snoopy who was supposedly the person or the character, I guess, that Schultz always wanted to be. You know, somebody who was adventurous and carefree instead of being bogged down by doubt and worry all the time. And so, you know, you think about this time in his life and Maybe by the 60s and 70s, you know, all this fame and fortune that Schultz finally made made him feel like that kind of person, I guess. If he was happier in his personal life, it Mm -hmm. would make sense that he might want to revel in that feeling and focus more on Snoopy. Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that. But from many fans' perspectives, the new Snoopy and by extension, the new Schultz were nothing to celebrate. 
they saw the slicker, flashier Snoopy as kind of like hard proof that Schultz, who is now this millionaire cartoonist, had kind of lost touch with those insecurities that had made Charlie Brown so relatable in the first place. So the Atlantic actually did an article on this, and they subbed up the feeling this way. Quote, There was something fundamentally rotten about the new Snoopy, whose charm was based on his total lack of concern about what others thought of him. His confidence, his breezy sense that the world may be falling apart, but one can still dance on, was worse than irritating. It was morally bankrupt. Two-legged Snoopy with his airs and fantasies, peerless Snoopy, rich Snoopy, popular Snoopy, world-famous Snoopy, contented Snoopy, that spoiled everything. Good Lord. I mean, this is I know. like <laughs> so overthought on the one hand. But I mean, I guess I get what they're saying, but it still feels pretty harsh to pin all of that on Snoopy. And mm-hmm. plus, when you think about the strips where Snoopy's imagining all of these wild and kind of high-flying adventures, they usually end with a reality bursting his bubble in some way. And, you know, like all of a sudden Snoopy feels cold, so we're back on top of his doghouse instead sure. of the desert or wherever. But I don't know. Things like that always made me feel like Snoopy's flights of fancy were they were really just another coping mechanism for how tough life can be, whether that was like Linus's blanket or Lucy's hot temper. But I don't know. That just seems like such a harsh reaction. And mm-hmm. you, know, you think about this, Snoopy would talk a good game, but at the end of the day, he's just a pup. So <laughs> I, I don't know. To me, there's something endearing about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I, I think Schultz would as well. In 1999, he was being interviewed on The Tonight Show uh, just as he was announcing his retirement. And he observed that, quote, Snoopy likes to think that he's this independent dog who does all these things and leads his own life. But he always makes sure that he never gets too far from the supper dish. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've talked a little more about the unique tone and mood of the peanut strips, what do you say we take a look at how that translated into all those TV specials? Definitely. But first, let's take a quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
Okay, Mango, so we established earlier that you didn't exactly do your homework by watching 1976's It's Arbor Day, Charlie (laughs) Brown. So I guess we'll have to talk about that in a later episode, maybe a dedicated episode just Uh to that. But it's actually not the only unusual title. I mean, there's some other chestnuts in the mix, like Someday You'll Find Her, Charlie Brown, which sounds (laughs) a little bleak. And my personal favorite, Why Charlie Brown, Why? Why indeed? That's that's a crazy title. <laughs> well, I think because money, Mango. I mean, the first <laughs> Peanut special was such a giant ratings hit for CBS that the network immediately commissioned four more specials and obviously many more to follow that. Which is fair enough. But I, I think for everyone's sake, we should probably just stick to a special that uh, people have actually seen. So, But why don't we talk a little bit about the one that people will be watching for the millionth time in the next few <laughs> weeks, which is 1965's The Charlie Brown Christmas. That makes sense. So what do you want to say first about it? Well, how about the fact that nobody involved in the special thought it was actually going to work? And it's actually hard to imagine this now, but you know, um, there were a lot of factors working against it while it was in production. And a lot of those actually stemmed from controversial choices that Schultz himself insisted on. Like what? So for starters, Schultz insisted that the Peanuts kids be voiced by real children. And this meant the crew would be working with mostly non-professionals, many of whom were too young to memorize their lines or even to read in some cases. So most of the child actors had to have their lines fed to them a few words at a time. It was all done by that long-suffering director and, and the voice of Snoopy, Bill Melendez. I mean, just hearing that, it does make me realize that in the specials, the the voices do sound a little choppy, like the way kids talk isn't exactly seamless. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of rhythm to the senses. And if you listen close enough, you can actually hear the seams between the words where like different parts of a line were stitched together in post. Yeah. But these untrained actors were just the first of many notes that ended up jeopardizing the project. And these were all coming from Schultz. So another shakeup came when Schultz refused to let the network uh, use a laugh track to, I guess, kind of cue the viewers on the jokes. Which is so strange because it is hard to imagine it now with a laugh track. Yeah, but I I guess laugh tracks were common practice at the time, even in cartoons. Like, uh, you know, the Flintstones obviously relied on one, and I I think the Jetsons too. But but when uh, Lee Mendelssohn mentioned the idea to Schultz, the the artist simply got up and left the room. (laughs) And then a few minutes later, Schultz came back and carried on the conversation as if nothing had happened. (laughs) (laughs) Which does sound a little bit like a George Costanza tactic, you know? It's pretty funny. Yeah, totally. And I, I guess Mendelssohn read between the lines on that and never brought up the laugh track again. Wow. What about some of the heavier stuff in the special, like the commercialization of Christmas and that scene where Linus reads from the Bible? Like, was Schultz behind those kinds of decisions, too? Yeah, definitely. It was really important to him that the special explore what he called the true meaning of Christmas, which is why Linus reads the story of Jesus's birth straight from the Gospel of Luke. And this was a super risky move at the time because, according to The Atlantic, less than 9% of Christmas episodes and specials from the era contained any religious references of any kind, much less direct quotes from scripture. So, surprisingly, CBS didn't object to this inclusion, and neither did Coca-Cola, who was the special sponsor. Um, The producer, though, was super nervous, and he told Schultz that no animated character had ever read from the Bible before, which was all the more reason to Schultz. And he told Mendelssohn, well, if we don't do it, who will? I mean, I guess that's true, but that was still a pretty big gamble at the time. I mean, CBS and Coke must have really liked what they saw if they let the reference pass without, you know, much more scrutiny. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd think so, but this executive from Coke's uh, ad agency actually visited the crew halfway through production, and he said the special was shaping up to be a total disaster. And hmm. and CBS thought the same thing when they screened like this early cut of it just a few weeks before the premiere. They said there was too little action, uh, that the whole thing moved way too slowly, and not to mention the low-energy voice acting and the jazzy soundtrack, which they just found grating for some reason. But mm-hmm. Bill Melendez later said that the network would have scrapped the entire special, except that they'd made this commitment to Coke, and it was kind of too late to back out. So the show went on as scheduled, and to everyone's shock, viewers just tuned in in droves. Like yeah. uh, I, I want to say... um. Half of all American households with the TV tuned in to watch the special that night, which was apparently 15 million people at the time. And a few months later, Charles Schultz and Lee Mendelson were on stage at the Emmys actually accepting the award for Outstanding Children's Program. It it was this surprise hit that no one had seen coming, and, and that included Charles Schultz himself. He later told TV Guide in 1985, the continued success of the special has surprised me as much as anyone. A lot of the drawings are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and of course, those terrible drawings are based on his own designs. Yeah, though I, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that Schultz would, you know, take this glass half empty approach when judging right. his own work. But uh, you, you know, for all the fanciful touches in, in his stories, like kite eating trees and canine fighter pilots, you know, Peanuts is really a strip about simple truths. Its characters are vulnerable, just like the creator and all of us, really. And and there's mm-hmm. no grand finale or, or cathartic resolution to the stories. And that's probably what makes the strips, you know, ring so true to us. Yeah, you know, I've actually been thinking a lot this week about a quote that Schultz gave in an interview, and it was actually with Penthouse of all places. But <laughs> he was talking about how much of his own life is wrapped up in the strip and what he hoped to accomplish with it. And, and here's what he had to say about it. Of course, I could grind out daily gags, but I'm not interested in simply doing gags. I'm interested in doing a strip that says something and makes some comment on the important things of life. And I really think that mantra bleeds through in every single one of his strips. And Mm -hmm. they show us that life is made up of both small, hard-won triumphs and these bitterly felt disappointments and not always in equal measure either. But the important thing is to pick yourself up and never stop trying and... You know, Charles Schultz understood that. And I feel like thanks to his work, lots of other people, including us, do too. Definitely. But, you know, before we dive into this delicious feast of buttered toast and jelly beans that Tristan has prepared for us, (laughs) what do you say we sneak in a quick fact off? I don't know if I can hold off, but let's try. So did you know that NASA gives out an award every year called the Silver Snoopy? It's Uh actually a silver pin, and instead of going to astronauts, it actually is the astronauts who give the awards to the staff and the researchers that help support them. So this program started in the 60s, and you're probably wondering why Snoopy? Well, at the time, NASA had just suffered the disaster with the Apollo 1 mission, and they were looking for something uplifting that people could really get behind. And there was nothing bigger than Snoopy at the time. So today the pins go for about $1,000 on eBay, and NASA claims every pin goes to space and comes back before it's handed out. Oh, I really like that. (laughs) 
So, you know, when, when Charles Schultz uh, moved away from Minnesota as an adult, he, he never actually gave up his love of ice hockey. So when one ice skating rink that was close to his home in California closed in the 60s, he actually had one built. And according to Mental Floss, he loved the Swiss Alpine-themed arena so much that he ate both breakfast and lunch there every day at its warm puppy snack bar. <laughs> and he also used to play pickup games every week with his sons, uh, I guess, on Tuesday nights, which is kind of fun. Well, apparently the Charlie Brown Halloween special had a huge impact on kids, and particularly the scene where Charlie Brown opens his Halloween bag and finds that he's just got a bunch of rocks instead of candy. (laughs) So kids thought this was so unfair that for years they would try to share their treats with him, and so they would send bags of candy to Charles Schultz's office, Care of Charlie Brown. So here's the super weird one about musician Vince Guaraldi, who did all that jazzy music for the specials. Apparently one night while he was composing music for the Halloween special, he decided to take a shower. But when he heard a noise outside, he ran down to see what it was. And somehow he locked himself out of his house in the process, completely naked. I I don't know why he didn't have a towel (laughs) with him, but the only way to get back into his house was to climb and, and break into his own house and, of course, the neighbors <laughs> called the cops on him. So apparently when the police came up to this naked man breaking into his own house and asked him to identify himself, he did keep his sense of humor. And he said, don't shoot. I'm the great pumpkin. <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a super quick fact about the trouble with working with kid actors. So during the taping of the Christmas special, there was a child actress who portrayed both Violet and Frida. And she would get so nervous before reading each time that after she was done recording, every single time, she would throw up. Now, luckily, she didn't have that big of a role. (laughs) Kid actors. Yeah. (laughs) Well, here's one that's kind of heartwarming. Uh, So so we all know that Lucy loves to pull that football away from Charlie Brown just as he's about to kick it. And often she says mean things right before or after. Like, uh, apparently she'll ask him, don't you trust anyone anymore before (laughs) uh, putting the football out? Or or, uh, she'll let him know after she's pulled it away that... Don't you know a woman's handshake isn't binding, <laughs> which is a, a strange bit of legalese there. Right, but, right. You know, th- there was one moment where she let him kick the ball, and this was in 1970, as Slate reports. Um, there was actually a sequence where Charlie Brown gets very ill, and when Lucy hears that he's sick and might not come back from the hospital, she says how much he means to her and, and then promises to let him kick the football if he gets better. And then when he does recover, she lives up to her promise and holds that ball out for him. But, of course, he slips and misses it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is nice to know that for once she gave him a chance. And I, I like that fact. So I, I think you get to take home today's trophy. Thank you, Will. And, and thanks for all of you out there for tuning in to another Part-Time Genius. You know, I am sure you have wonderful Snoopy and Charlie Brown memories. So if you've got facts or stories, we definitely want to hear them. Or if you've got topics you want us to cover, we're actually looking for those too. So just email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on the socials. But from Gabe, Tristan, Will, and me, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. 
Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.